Ah, good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Welcome to Life Community Church. We're glad that you're here. Uh, as always, we are a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ, and we strive to live out that identity through four different values, by practicing love with everyone always, by giving more than what makes sense, by chasing after the likeness of Christ in every corner of our lives, and ultimately anchoring ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word. That's who we are. That's what we're about. If you have questions, I'm always available after services. Uh, you can go to our website, check out our statement of faith, or even stop by our information desk. When you came in, you got your bulletin, just a couple things on the back that I want to go over. But before we do that, just know on the bottom of that is a perforated tab. If you're new here, we'd like to get to know you. You can drop that off in the offering boxes outside the double doors or take it to the information desk, uh, and they'll give you a nice little gift for being here for the first time. Uh, a couple things on the back. Uh, we have our midweek ministry beginning here on February 5th. We are signing up for classes. There's rosters available that you can see what classes are going on. Again, always good to remind our, our Sunday rhythm here is about biblical literacy, and so we study uh, really in depth. We're reading, obviously, the book of Job right now. Uh, our Wednesdays are more topical lessons that we pull out of Scripture, and so if you're interested, you can go back under our chase value. There's a table that has our roster of classes, and you can look over that. Second thing is, is that right after today's service, we're going to have a core meeting just to recap last year's financial information and then kind of give you some uh, things going forward, what's going to happen. So if you're a, a regular attender here, uh, we'd love for you to stick around and kind of stick into what we call like a, a business meeting. And then immediately after that, our sin ministry has a meeting. If you're interested in going to Puerto Rico, they're meeting today after our core meeting. And we're actually going to be praying over our team that is heading to the Super Bowl to um, work with human trafficking around the event itself. And so we're going to pray over those after we dismiss here today between our core meeting. Well, glad that you're here. If you have your Bibles or if you have a device, you can go ahead and turn to Job 1. We're going to rest in this for most of our time, if not all of our time today. Uh, it seems quite a daunting task to tackle 42 chapters in the book of Job in 12 weeks. Daunting task. I've ran a few mini marathons in my life. No snickering. Uh, the word uh, run probably is a strong verb in that instance. I would say that I finished a few mini-marathons bitterly, and at the end of those mini-marathons, there has always been one thought that's come to my head every time, and this is the thought. What idiot runs 13 more miles? That's the thought that comes. What idiot? That 13 miles was ridiculous. Who would want to run a full marathon? And so uh, maybe you're in here, maybe you're one of those idiots that uh, did a a full marathon, and I would just say, tip my hat to you, you're better than me in this area. You're not an idiot. You're awesome. Some might say that we're foolish to tackle 42 chapters in 12 weeks, but my hope and my prayer has been this, just like finishing a challenging race, that we would be moved to gratitude and confidence, not in ourselves, or that we accomplish something, but we would grow in confidence and gratitude for who God is and how he's deepened our faith in this journey. And so we're excited to walk through the journey of Job. It begins with a series of events that alternate from earth into the heavenly realms. From earth into the heavenly realms between the events of a guy named Job and his life and the governance of the universe by the most high God in heaven. No book gives us greater access or insight to the governance of the cosmos than the book of Job. 
It allows us to walk in both realities, earth and in heaven. In doing so, it allows us to see this inclusive range, the heights and the depths and the widths of God's glory and splendor and mercy. And so it is a beautiful book. There is nothing that has happened. There is nothing that will happen. There is nothing that might happen that will not be under the authority and the glory of God. And so let's just start by getting into this, the first verse here. First verse in Job chapter 1 says this, that there was a man in the land of Oz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. We walked in this scripture just a little bit last week, and what this seems to be is scripture is beginning to anchor one end of God's glory and supremacy. This is a bookend, if you would might say, uh, if you would allow me the letter A in God's alphabet of God's greatness and sufficiency. Job is an anchor. There is probably no human being that we could say uh, got what they deserved more than Job. Job is completely obedient, righteous, follows God. If we were to look at Job here in the beginning, we would call Job the poster child of prosperity or prosperity's poster child. He's the model, the ultimate example of what the prosperity gospel believes to be true. And last week we talked about this this truth that we convey, this this thing called the prosperity gospel that's evil, it's self-consumed, it's destructive, it's a, a viewpoint that says it is God's desire that gives to give us plenty of money, to give us health, to have personal and material blessing. That's the prosperity gospel. And when we have those things, which we do in spades in this Western culture, that prosperity gospel turns into the therapeutic gospel, which says it's God's purpose for you to have a fulfilling and happy life. If that was true, which it's not, Job is the poster boy of prosperity here. This is what the Bible says about Job. In Job 1, it says that he's blameless, he's upright, he turns away from evil. And so what that says is not that he's sinless, he's not perfect. Sinless has to deal with our vertical relationship with God and being right in that. Blameless has to deal with our horizontal relationships with one another. Job is a man of integrity. Who he is on the outside is exactly who he is on the inside. He's just that good. His heart as as good as his action. There's no pretend, there's no fakeness. People look at Job and they see exactly what he is. Upright, obedient, he's just a good dude. His family, idyllic. He's got a great family. Psalms 127 says that children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a a reward. Maybe you're not in a season where you see your kids as a reward right now, but Scripture says it that way. They're a reward. And that psalm ends up saying, like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children of one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full. A quiver is a a sheath that you put your arrows in. Job is a blessed man. His quiver is full. He has seven sons, the perfect number, seven in Scripture. He has seven sons and three daughters, perfectly loved by their father, protected by their seven older brothers. 
This is a beautiful family. It's dreamlike family. This is the family that we always want to be a part of. And maybe you said, no, not 10 kids. I don't want 10 kids. This is a good, right, beautiful thing. And as far as his possessions, he's loaded 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 oxen, 500 donkeys, and very many servants in a culture at this time where stature and nobility was based upon possession and the size of your family, we will say that Job is extravagantly rich. In fact, the Bible says that there's no one greater in the East than Job. I would say that there's probably none better than Job. Isn't this who we'd want to be? Isn't this what we would want in our lives? There is no one better than Job. We're not going to put Jesus in this camp yet. This is a good dude. He is the picture of piety, which means devotion to God, producing prosperity. His obedience to God seems to be rewarded. And he is all the wisdom and knowledge of Proverbs, that book that just has nuggets of just right living and good wisdom for us. Job is all the wisdom and truth of Proverbs rolled into a person. He's the embodiment of living wisely, godly, and right. The book of Job contends that happiness consists in a good man being great, in a pious man being prosperous. It is a picture of the world that we want to live in. It's a picture of the world that ought to exist, where the righteous lead and good is rewarded. It is a world where the prosperity gospel is true. And God will go on to call Job my servant. Reserved for only a few people in the Old Testament, God has deep affection for Job. But then we turn the pages of Scripture, and we enter in the heavenly realms, where God sits on the throne, and it is that servant, Job, that is the object of the conversation. And so we'll jump down to verse 6 in Job 1 to read through verse 12. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is no one like him on earth, blameless and upright. He fears the Lord God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? Have you blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land? But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. And so Satan went out from the presence of God. And so what we see here is this picture of a morning supervisory meeting. There are sons of God that are, that are around God. Sons of God is translated into angels and in different translations in your scripture. These are subdivine beings that are in the presence of their creator. And they're there like the, the president in front of his cabinet to, re, to hear what's been going on in their realms, that God could have scrutiny and oversight on those things. And what is interesting is that we see amongst those people our adversary, 
the enemy. He's in the heavenly realms, which leads to the question, like, is this normative? Is Satan always there, or is he some sort of party crasher? Is he jumping the gates, and is he trespassing in the heavenly realms? It's important that we understand what is happening here, because it can create conflict if we allow it in our understanding of God's holiness. We would say, and the Bible would contend, that God is so perfect, so holy, so awesome, that he cannot be in the mere presence of sin and disobedience, that he cannot be around imperfect things. This is why Jesus is so necessary for us. Christ's resurrection, his death provides for us his perfection, his righteousness, that God, when he sees us, he sees his son. Habakkuk, a prophet, writes this in Habakkuk 1. He says about God, you who are purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. John writes in his letters in 1 John 1 that God is pure light. There is not an ounce, a hint of darkness in it. So how is it possible that the author of darkness, the chaos creator himself, Satan, is in the heavenly realms? It's important that we understand the context of this interaction. The context of this is not fellowship. Satan is not in fellowship with God. This is one of governance. God does not fellowship with evil, but he certainly can use and does use evil in his governance of the cosmos. This adversary, Satan, is in the room because he is always in every way submissive to God. Sometimes we create this idea that there's a cosmic battle of good and evil happening in the world, this giant G.I. Joe versus Cobra battle. This is my childhood coming out. Where the, where the, the, the battle's in the swing, uh, somebody's going to win, we don't know, but that's not what the Bible contends here. Satan is present in the heavenly realms because God allows him to be there because he is submissive to the authority and the glory and the splendor of God. That's why he's there. In the cosmic realm, we see Satan asking God this, or God asking Satan this question, where have you been? From where have you come? As if God doesn't know where he's come from. He knows exactly what Satan is doing. There's no confusion on what Satan is going to be said or reporting in his actions. Satan's not going to come to him and say, you know, found this nice little cappuccino shop down here, and I think you should check it out. Satan does one thing and one thing alone. He proves and tests the authenticity and genuineness of those who love God with a desire to utterly destroy them. He has one action to test and prove those who love God with a desire to utterly destroy them. This is why God brings up Job. Satan doesn't bring up Job. God brings up Job. I know what you've been doing, inferred. Have you noticed my servant Job? There's none like him. And Satan responds to Job. A question is raised that he asks of all of us. Does Job fear God for no reason? The accusation is this, Job only loves, fears, reveres you because of the prosperity, of the possession, of the power that you've afforded to him. And if you would take those things away, he would curse you to your face. And in it, we see God allowing Satan to test Job with one catch. He can't hurt him as a person. 
And thus begins the destruction of everything that Job has. Prosperity's poster boy will come to ruin. He will be a shell of himself. He will become something absolutely opposite. As good as it is, and it's great, it will swing the other way. Job becomes the unsurpassed sufferer. No one in the history of the globe has ever suffered like this man. He is still, even in that suffering, though, blameless and upright. He is absolutely blindsided by what is about to happen. And so with permission, Satan destroys everything that Job has. We'll consider this act one in the destruction of Job. On a day where all of his children are gathered to celebrate some maybe birthday or have a festival, Job meets four messengers back to back to back. The first messenger comes and says, this group called the Sabians, they have taken your oxen and the donkeys and all your servants were cut down, they were killed. But yet while that one was speaking, another servant came, the second messenger came and said, a fire rained down from heaven and your sheep and your servants were all destroyed, they were burned up. And while he was talking, a third messenger came and said that the Chaldeans surrounded three parties, got your camels, and they cut down all the servants that were present with them. And yet, still, while he had not finished, a fourth messenger came and said that your kids were in the house celebrating, and a wind came and blew the whole structure down. They're all dead. I'm the only one to survive to come and tell you these things. Do you hear this story? He has no time to process anything. Not one moment to be able to grieve before the next messenger appears to tell him the next piece of devastating news. One gut punch after the next. In one day, Job has lost all of his children and all of his possessions, the greatest man of the region was emptied of all of his wealth on one day, from riches to rags, and he is devastated. Obviously so. But the scriptures convey that even in his lamenting and grieving and mourning, that Job did not sin. Job, in Job 1.22, says this, in all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. He passed the test. He's blameless, upright still. He did not fear and love and revere God for the things that God gave him. He feared and loved God for who he was. He did not curse God to his face. That's not what happened. And every one of us in this room would be like, that's good. We're okay with this ending here. That's a brutally tragic story, God. We get it, love God for God. Not for the stuff that he gives us. But then we turn the page and see that the devastation of Job has only just begun. Chapter 2 brings us into the throne room again with the same people, same questions, same challenge, same responses. Job 2, verse 3. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my my servant Job? That there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. What we learn here is the true motive of Satan. He wanted God to destroy Job. God says that Job held on, although he was enticed by Satan to destroy him. Certainly Job's suffering was undeserved, but Satan wanted more. 
He always wants more, always wants to bring destruction. And we see it in his words in Job 2.4. Satan responding to God says, then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has, will give, he will give his life. Satan's inference is this. You can take what a person has and they will be devastated, but ultimately they will be undeterred. But if you attack a person for who he is physically, he will curse you to his face. The story is going to be different. And all of us in this moment want nothing more than God to say enough. Get out of my face, Satan. Can't you see that this man has gone through more in a day than anyone in the world has ever gone through? And you're asking to give you permission to do more? We want God to say enough is enough to curse Satan and have him leave the room. We want God to look down on Job and restore him because that's what we want for us. We want to know that in our suffering that God is going to pick us up, that that is going to turn to good. But as we read, that's not what happens. That's not what we read. And it is beyond our sensibilities that God would give permission to Satan to devastate this man again. It shocks us to our core again and again and again. This is exactly what happens. And in chapter 2, we see act 2 of Job's role as the unsurpassed sufferer. Satan plagues Job with sores from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. This is a physical attack. And the word records a picture, an image of Job covered in sores, sitting in the ash heap of his life, utterly destroyed. And to add insult to injury, maybe maybe worse than the totality of all the events that have happened to Job are the words of his wife. In Job 2.9, it says that his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. We've seen that in all the tragedy of Job's life. He has not spoken a word against God. Even in this new round of devastation, But his wife, who we have to believe is suffering and grieving in her own way, tells Job to do exactly what he's been unwilling to do to this point. Curse God, which we should read as reject God and die. Imagine if everything that you ever had was taken away from you. Your children, your possessions, your money, your body in utter ruins, in ashes, on the ground, One person remains, it's your faithful partner, your spouse, and they say to you, curse God and die. Do you feel how devastating that is? But Job, again, just blameless and upright, he says to his wife, you're speaking like a foolish one. He doesn't call his wife a fool. He says, you're better than that. That is beneath you. Should we not receive good from God? And also, should we not receive evil? And we find in this that Job, in all that he does, again, does not sin. He's blameless and upright. And so the question that we have is, what do we do with this? How how are we to understand all of this? So I want to walk through three points that I think will help us digest the Scripture 
in better capacity. Two takeaways, and then one caution for us. And so the first takeaway is to understand exactly what we're seeing. What we're seeing in the first few chapters of Job is God's glory is being defined. God's glory is being defined, and I want to define that term glory here in a second. At the beginning of Job, we find our letter A. One anchor, one bookmark in the wide range of God's supremacy and glory. We have the poster boy of prosperity. And here, at the end of chapter 2, we find our letter Z, this other bookend. This is the range from the best of the best to the worst of the worst. God's glory remains supreme and steadfast. When we use the word glory, what we're speaking of is the surpassing beauty and character and worth and value and might of God. And Job goes to great lengths to reveal to us that God's glory is far exceeding the best things, the best people on this earth. It is greater than all of those things, and it is even steadfast and remains in the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst. It is to say this, that God is worthy of our worship, whether we are king or a pauper, whether we have good or bad, whether life is great or terrible. Whatever the situation, God is worthy to be worshiped that his glory would be known in the world. And I'm not going to dive in too deeply here because we've got like 40 other chapters to get through today. Not today. (laughs) I wasn't prepared for it. But Job is developing our understanding that we exist to make known the glory of God in the universe. We exist to make known God's splendor and worth and beauty to the world around us. We don't exist for ourselves. You're not an end. You are a means to God's end to show his glory to the world. We exist to reflect him. And maybe that might sound foolish and self-centered, even perverse, that your life is meant to reflect the glory of God. If I raise my girls to reflect how awesome of a dad I am, that I would say to them that you are to make it known how good and awesome and upright that I am. You'd call DCS on me, and rightfully so. That is extreme narcissism. That is self-centered and foolish. But listen, it's not with God. Christopher Ashe writes this in his commentary on Job. He says, it's not self-centered of God to desire his own glory. For us, it's, it is an inappropriate megalomania. I like the word megalomania. For God, it is to desire the most deeply right thing in the world. For God, it is to desire the most deeply right thing in the world. We, the universe, creation, all that we have, all that we are, was created not by a God who needed something or lacked anything, but out of the complete and perfect unity and love of the triune God in the Trinity, that love and unity spilled out on the cosmos to reflect God's glory and his beauty, to reflect how supreme he is. It is the most right thing in all the universe to reflect our perfect creator. 
And we will walk more into that as we journey through the book of Job. The second takeaway that we see here in the early chapters of Job is that Job is making Christ revealed. Christ is being revealed. Our Old Testament scriptures always point forward to the New Testament, where in the kingdom of God, Jesus Christ would conquer sin by the means of grace through faith. Job is a foreshadowing story of the future Christ. Where Job is blameless, Christ is sinless. Where Job was the best man in a region, Christ is the best person to ever exist in the entirety of the world. Where Job undeservedly suffered as an innocent man, Christ would undeservedly be crushed as an innocent man, dying as an innocent man. As good as Job was, Christ is better. As bad as it is for Job, Jesus paid a fuller price. Where Job's story shows us the range of the supremacy and the glory of God, Jesus' death would show us the range of God's love for humble sinners. Jesus, or Job, points us to the hope that we have in Christ. And so I have one caution. One caution. Sometimes we read this and we want to put God on trial. Job should not be about us questioning the virtues and the ways of God. I find often we want to get lost in the weeds of justice in Job 1 and 2. We want to find defense or the actions behind the actions of God. But that's not the point of Job 1. That's not the point of Job 2. The application is this, is that we would wrestle with the very question that Satan asked God about Job. If everything I had was taken from me, would I curse God? If he took away my reputation, my health, my abilities, my children, my people, my money, my possession, would we curse God? That's the pressing question. Because as horrific as the story of Job is, this is not to be understood as a provoking thought, uh, thought-provoking story, but rather seen as our personal story as well. We still have an enemy. And he still has one function. He lurks to prove and test the authenticity of those who love God. He prowls. We are left to question and wrestle with the status of our affection for God. If he took it all away from us, would we still worship? And we take that thought as we head into communion today, as we come in a time where we are going to celebrate what Christ has done for us by establishing the range of God's love for humble sinners, that as we eat of his bread, we remember the broken body of Christ on the cross, and as we drink of the juice, we remember the blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. But before we do that, that we would take a moment and reflect on our lives, that we would look internally and ask that very question, do I fear God for no reason? If he took all the stuff away from me, where would I be? That you would take this time to reflect, get your heart right with God, and maybe ask for forgiveness for things that you know you need forgiveness for, 
And as we say always every time that we do communion, just understand this is for the family of God, those who trust and obey and love Jesus. If you're in here today and you've not made that decision, like we love that you're here, we want you here. But know that this is for family, so it's okay just to, to sit and be at peace. But let's take a few moments here and reflect on the complexity of Job and wrestle with the questions that God gives to us and then come to the table. Let me pray with us. Father, this is beautiful, but it's hard. Uh, I wanted nothing more than Job's struggles to end and, and you to restore him and make everything go away. But you didn't do that. And so, God, will you help us to wrestle with the complexity of who you are? Will you help us to see the width of your glory and how steadfast it is in all things? God, help us to focus our heart on the sacrifice of Jesus. God, we give you thanks today for your son and his death and his resurrection and how he's changing our lives. And we pray this as humble sinners saved by the blood of Christ. Amen.